Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and welcome to the season finale of Majority 54. Today, we're talking healthcare, taxes, and activism with Adi Barkan. Like me, you probably first became aware of Adi when a video of him confronting Jeff Flake went viral. But that wasn't Adi's first stab at activism. Far from it, in fact. A graduate of Columbia and of Yale Law, he could have done anything he wanted. Could have made a whole bunch of money right out of school, but instead, he started representing low-wage workers in New York City in pursuit of everything from paid sick days to the unionization of the car wash industry. Today, Audie is a director at the Center for Popular Democracy, where he runs Local Progress and the Fed Up campaign. Audie is just 34, and 18 months ago, he and his wife Rachel welcomed a son, Carl. But in a very short period of time, he's gone from being an active runner and hiker to being in a wheelchair, unable to pick up his son. A little over a year ago, he was diagnosed with ALS, a terminal illness that paralyzes its victims over time. That video of Adi and Senator Flake especially hit home with me, because the strain in Adi's voice sounded familiar. My father has a long-course motor neuron disease in the ALS family. It's a cruel and inexplicably random affliction, and after talking to Adi, I found myself in awe of his resilience and thankful for the way that he's continued to dedicate his life to fighting for what's right. Here's Adi. You didn't become an activist because of ALS. You're an activist who has ALS. Uh, you went to Yale Law. You could have done anything. But what was the moment in your life when you feel like you really went from being a spectator to a participant in the arena? Well, you know, the truth is it's been in my lifeblood since I was pretty young. I organized my first protest in the fall of 2000, I believe, yeah, I was a sophomore in high school, and California was on the verge of passing a constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage, and uh, I brought a bunch of yard signs to school against the proposition and organized a lunchtime info session And I was expecting 10 people to show up, but the theater teacher advertised it um, to, you know, a very gay-friendly crowd in her classes that day. And we had a packed room of like 50, 60 kids uh, (laughs) wanting to get the yard signs. So I've been doing it, you know, for a while. Um, And I... um, I have to say that it gives me a lot of fulfillment and a sense of identity and purpose um, to be able to to call this a job because it really is fun and inspiring and energizing. 
What do you think it was about that constitutional amendment proposal? I mean, you're uh, you're heterosexual. You were a sophomore in high school, and yet you were the one at your high school that was organizing that. What What do you think it was that struck you that pushed you to do that? You know, it's a funny question because the truth is I was actually— at the time, I didn't f- identify myself as in favor of uh, gay marriage, um, even though I was organizing an anti, anti-gay anti marriage proposition protest. Somehow I felt like it was just mean-spirited and discriminatory, and like I was still too conservative and too kind of... Excuse me, comfortable with the status quo, you know, that it still felt to me like, oh, maybe marriage is between a man and a woman, and but we still don't need to enshrine in the state constitution uh, discrimination or something like that. Um, and, you know, I evolved pretty quickly from there, but to to be a full supporter of equal rights. But um, I grew up in a household with four academic parents. Both my parents and step-parents are historians. And so kind of scholarship and study and um, being informed about current events were always a big deal in my household. But none of them, at least during my childhood, were active in politics or movement building. And I think by the time I was in high school and college, I kind of wanted to resist that a little bit. Their um, Ivy League uh, kind of scholarship and uh, analytic worldview. And I wanted to get my hands dirty and participate rather than being a commentator or an observer. I had done journalism in high school and college as a news writer and then an opinion columnist. And I decided around the end of of college that I didn't want to be a commentator. I wanted to get my hands dirty. How's that for a long answer, Jason? It's a good answer. It's a good answer. Let's fast forward a little. Tell me about Fed Up. So Fed Up is a national campaign that's now three and a half years old to demand that the Federal Reserve adopt policies that promote good jobs and higher wages and full employment for all communities in the United States, including the black and brown and rural communities that are being left behind in this economy. And when you started it, I, I would imagine that when you went to the folks uh, you worked, you work at, it's the Center for Popular Democracy, right? That's right. And I imagine when you, when you went to the folks at the Center for Popular Democracy and you said, we're going to do a grassroots campaign aimed at monetary policy at the Fed, I would imagine there was some level of skepticism about pulling something like that off. That's right, totally, and with good reason. Mm -hmm. It's an esoteric issue. It's hard to understand how interest rates affect the economy, let alone how interest rates affect 
you as an individual and why you should get involved to push the Fed to to act. And furthermore, our primary campaign demand was and has been that the Fed shouldn't act. It should keep interest rates low. And that's a hard campaign to run to say, keep the status quo going with your policy, mm-hmm. uh, especially when people are hurting so much. So, you know, I think the skepticism was appropriate and it provided me with a lot of hard and good questions that we answered collectively as a team and a coalition to come up with a good model for running the campaign. And I think the results are really paying off. And in in breaking through with the Fed Up campaign, I've read where you've said that the, the key to it and really where you've said the key to activism is is forcing people to see the humanity of others. How how in that case did you do it in a general? How how do you how do you force people to see humanity? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think that's right. Look, when you're advocating for interest rate you know, policy. It's so dry. It's so dehumanizing. So what we did was we started educating and organizing uh, low-income and moderate-income people of color in the 12 cities where the Fed has its banks around the country. And we then set up meetings with the Fed presidents where we would go with a delegation of seven or 15 or 25 people to meet with the Fed president representing a coalition of groups and local residents. And we would have people tell their stories and explain to the Fed officials why full employment really had not yet arrived in their communities. And they would describe the not just their own personal experience, but the experience of people up and down their street and their communities and that kind of personal narrative sticks with policymakers because they're looking at white papers and documents all day long, but they don't often hear from the people who are affected most by their decisions. Certainly the Fed officials don't, who are such an insulated and isolated group of uh, policymakers. And, you know, we tried to have those conversations on the record where we could We tried to hold them accountable and tell the press about them. We tried to make it so that they really had to hear our voices and see us as human beings. And um, there were various, over the last three years, important moments when I think we succeeded in doing that. And, you know, the broader point is I think that applies to all forms of activism. We need to make sure that the people most impacted by government policy are out in the front, telling their stories, making their arguments, putting forward their vision for a more just and equitable society. And that's the kind of advocacy that invariably is most effective, much more so than having professional wonks, you know, give statistics. Because uh, although that professional type of advocacy is important. It doesn't pack the emotional punch um, that storytelling from impacted individuals does. And ideally, that kind of uh, sophisticated argumentation and lobbying from 
impacted individuals does. So that's a little bit the model of community organizing that we try to use at the Center for Popular Democracy and that I've tried to use uh, with the Fed Up campaign and the fight over taxes and health care in particular. I think it's awesome. I think it's inspiring. I mean, a big part of what we try and do with this podcast is is introduce people to activists who have gone out and gotten involved. But the other thing that we do, and what's larger than that, is really the the podcast is all about exposing people to people's stories because then they can take those stories and that's how they talk about issues to people, which is what you were doing at the next level with Fed Up. You weren't just talk, taking people's stories. You were taking the people to tell their own stories. And um, I think that's really important. So I first learned of you when I, like like so many other people in the country, saw the viral video of you confronting Senator Jeff Flake. You can be an American hero. You really can. You're, you're halfway there. You can save my life. Please, please remember this conversation. My life depends on it. And I'm sure a lot of people who are listening have seen that. What did he say back to you? I mean, he said variations of, I disagree with you for X or Y reason, and I'm moved by your story, and you really know what you're talking about, and thank you for raising these issues with me. You know, I didn't find any of the answers he gave me in Category 1 to be persuasive, Um And I was glad he listened and glad he said he was moved, but um, obviously very disappointed in how he ended up voting. Was was the confrontation like pure coincidence or did you know that he'd be on the flight? I learned that he would be on the flight as I walked down the gangway. I ran into a woman who I'd never met before while we were boarding the plane, and I struck up a conversation with her quite uh, randomly, serendipitously, and mentioned to her that I had been arrested a couple days earlier protesting the tax scam. And she said, oh, you know, Jeff Flake is on this plane. (laughs) And so we immediately decided that I would talk to him and she would record me. So we recorded an intro walking down the gangway. She recorded me as I talked to him from the aisle in his seat. And then because the stewards and stewardesses told us, you have to move, you can't stand in the aisle and block the plane from getting loaded, uh, Jeff Flake said, I'll come back and speak to you. So an hour later, after the food cart had gone by, <laughs> he came back to talk to me. Do you do you think Jeff Flake saw your humanity? You know, I really don't know. I feel like he did in that moment. Um, I certainly do, both based on my recollection and on watching the video. And then the question is, how... Can he maintain such a vote in the face of that? Um, And, you know, I find it, frankly, inexplicable. Yeah, it's it's really frustrating, I mean, with him in particular, to watch somebody who, in many cases, not in all, but in many cases, is saying the right things about, and and I think a lot of us would feel saying the things that we want to see Republicans and Democrats say to stand up to the president, 
and then doesn't seem to follow through when it comes to voting. Yep. It's definitely disappointing. You've heard us talk about the amazing shave that you can get from Dollar Shave Club, the razor, especially when you use it with their Dr. Covers shave butter. It's Carver. What? It's Carver. What am I saying? You're saying cover. I don't know what accent that is. Especially when you use it with their Dr. Covers shave. Carver. There's an R. There's an R. I know. I I hear it. I'm going to spell it. C-A-R-V-E-R apostrophe S. I don't know why that's happening. It's nice of you to spell out the apostrophe. (laughs) They're adding even more Dollar Shave Club products to your daily routine. Dollar Shave Club makes products for your hair, your face, your skin, the shower, everything that you need. They have you looking and feeling amazing. What else am I? No, you're doing fine. I only corrected you because, you know, like, Mr. Carver didn't go to Dr. Shave Butter School. No, I understand. I just really thought that's what I was saying. And it's all their original stuff. They only use the finest premium ingredients and they deliver it to you just like they do their razors. That means no more annoying trips to the store, cruising up and down the aisles, looking at shelf upon shelf of what is that and what do I do with it? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good razor. And now is a great time to give Dollar Shave Club a try. You can get your first month of their best razor along with the travel size version of the shave butter, the body cleanser, and yes, even the fourth point of contact wipes for just $5. After that, replacement cartridges ship for just a few bucks a month. It's the Dollar Shave Club starter set. Get yours for just $5 exclusively at the Dollar. You're doing that on purpose. <laughs> the dollarshaveclub.com slash five four. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash five four. So switching gears a little, going back to the tax bill, what are the main points on the healthcare part of the tax bill that you were trying to get across, both to him and in general in your in your activism with it? Well, the biggest damage that it's gonna do to our healthcare system is by eliminating the individual mandate, it's going to eliminate health coverage for 13 million people. And as a result, it will cause premiums to go up and destabilize the marketplaces. Um, You know, the Affordable Care Act is built on the three legs of the individual mandate and universal coverage. Uh, uh, regulation, uh, and subsidies. And if you take out the universal coverage, the um, the whole thing starts to get pretty wobbly. Um, and, you know, the other thing that they're doing is they're now using the deficit as an excuse to start cutting Medicare and Medicaid um, and to justify... Uh, denying people care. You know, on a related point, the Trump administration just announced last week that they would permit Republicans or any states uh, to impose work requirements on Medicaid recipients, um, (laughs) which is really just a mechanism for kicking people off Medicaid. Uh, it's such a cruel and inhumane way to run a government. Um, and so this tax bill was part and parcel with that. There's obviously been a lot of focus on 
the fact that the lion's share of the benefits will go not to the middle class, not to the working class, but but to the rich. So we don't really need to cover that. But one question that I'm curious about. So in the past year, there's been plenty of times when we've geared up to fight and, and ultimately been unsuccessful. And and since the tax bill was passed, you've become active in the fight for dreamers. So So you've just kept going no matter what happens. I'm curious, and I think anybody listening is probably curious, what you say to yourself to stay motivated. Yeah. You know, I had a hard doctor's appointment yesterday where I got some uh, stressful news. I got a hard email from a research doctor this morning who I was hoping would tell me he would do a experimental um, stem cell trial with me. And uh, it's looking like that might be a stretch. So every day is certainly difficult. I've had a cold and I've been pretty debilitated this past week. Um, So certainly coming up with the strength to keep fighting is not always easy. But um, basically I do it because it is fun and empowering um, and energizing. You know, uh, it's much more fun to talk to you about tax policy and movement building than to sit in my chair and be annoyed that my right hand is deteriorating or to focus all day long on, uh, you know, the struggles I'm having with my insurance company. Um, uh, you know, most of all, that's because by being in partnership and brotherhood with uh, activists around the country who are fighting for things like I am, I can actually transcend my own personal circumstances. I become part of something bigger than me and um, a cause more important than my own life and a community uh, that includes so many beautiful uh, and brave people. So being part of that movement is really a form of personal liberation for me. Um, And so I actually don't have to motivate myself to do this work. It's such a reward in and of itself. Um, It's harder to motivate myself to do my physical therapy and take my stupid pills and drink my you know, my protein shake. Um, Mm. But it's easy to motivate to do a podcast interview or join a protest um, because that's what gives me energy and uh, excitement and fulfillment. So in that way, really, it's not that much different than the way it was for you prior to your diagnosis, I'm guessing. I mean, because I was going to ask you, you know, your advice for someone, you know, who's not in a similar situation to you, but who's thinking of getting into the arena, joining a cause, starting one of their own. And I was going to ask you what you learned, but it, I'm guessing, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds to me like you maybe would have given, you know, different details, but a similar answer before, which is I enjoy being engaged in making the world a better place with other people. It's fun for me and it, it's better than focusing on my own stuff. Or am I wrong? That's right. I mean, totally. Um, 
Look, if I could spend more time running on the beach here in Santa Barbara, or if I could take my son to the zoo more by myself, or cook my wife a delicious dinner like I used to be able to, then I would probably be spending more time on that and less on work. But at the moment, I'm relatively confined to my armchair and uh, to getting up and going places with support if I need to. So certainly the work um, gives me a freedom and an ability to be engaged. But yeah, the truth is I've loved this work since I was young. I'm going to keep trying to do it as long as I can. And, you know, not everybody has the same addiction to activism that I do, but I do think that it is so powerful. People who get arrested for the first time, people who go to a protest, they feel so empowered. I have so many friends and family who have never done this before, and then they do it for the first time, and they're like, oh my gosh, it's so much fun. I got to do it some more. So, you know, my message to people all around the country is that just give it one shot. Go to one meeting, go to one protest. You know, if you're able to leave your house, go be in fellowship with people, participate in this thing we call uh, American democracy, because it really is up to us to craft the society and the country that we want our, our children to grow up in. Democracy doesn't happen by itself. And Donald Trump and his racist, um, kleptocrat friends are doing all they can to take away our democracy. Um, So I think it's not only that it's important to do it because the stakes are so high, but I really do think most of your listeners uh, will enjoy it. Uh, And if you've been to one protest before, go to your second. If you've been to 10 or 20, go to your 11th or 21st, because I really think um, the more the merrier. Uh, This is our opportunity to to fight back and to win. It's going to be an exciting year, and we need all hands on deck. Adi, how, how can people help with what you're trying to do? Thanks, Jason. That's a great question. There are so many ways to get involved, whether you want to fight on issues of healthcare or dreamers, or if you want to help us um, protest the Trump administration uh, by getting arrested, folks should follow me on Twitter, Adi Barkin, A-D-Y-B-A-R-K-A-N is my handle. And I regularly post opportunities there for how you can get involved. So I would love to be in this fight with your listeners. And obviously, I'm really honored to have been able to speak with you about all these issues. I'm really grateful for your time and your interest in in me in these fights. Adi, thanks, man, for everything you're doing, and thanks for doing this. We are always looking for ways to better ourselves, learn new things. You can do that by watching and listening to The Great Courses Plus. It is such a great way to discover interesting information about people, places, and ideas In virtually any category, there's unlimited access to thousands of topics with fascinating insight from some of the world's leading professors and experts. And as one of my listeners, you can start enjoying the Great Courses Plus for free. 
Babe, I believe you have some recommendations. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've already told everybody about the crazy math skills you can do in your brain for others. That's a fantastic class. But the course I'd like to recommend today is Medical School for Everyone, Pediatrics Grand Rounds. It's a class on how to be a pediatrician for your child. They tell you everything you need to know about what fevers are important, what kind of vomiting is an okay vomiting. Like it's a really interesting class about when you need to worry and and what you need to know about raising a small child. It is a fascinating class. And, and I'm sure it also says this is not a substitute for taking your child. Yeah, to it a says you're not actually a pediatrician after you listen to these several hours. Of- <laughs> yes, but uh, for for a mom, it's it's just fantastic. It's not like a, I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last <laughs> night. It's just like that. It makes you really annoying to your actual pediatrician. <laughs> That's probably right. <laughs> you can watch this from any TV, laptop, tablet, or smartphone, or listen along with the Great Courses Plus app. There's so much to explore with the Great Courses Plus, and as one of our listeners, you'll get a free trial to enjoy it all. But you need to go to our special URL, start your free trial today, sign up com slash majority54. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash majority54. If nothing else, listening to Audi has to remind you none of us have an excuse for not doing more to fight for what's right. I so appreciate him. All right. I tweeted the other day asking y'all for examples of deceptive arguments for me to respond to on the subject of healthcare and taxes, and there was no shortage of ideas. So let's run through some of the most popular ones. So the first argument is that when corporations have more money, they create jobs and they spend it on their employees. We've heard this a lot. This is trickle-down economics, or on C-SPAN, they would call it supply-side economics. Don't fall into the trap of then advocating for demand-side economics. Don't sound like you're on C-SPAN. Instead, talk like regular people talk about what this is. What I do is I say, look, imagine that this tax cut has just passed and there's a corporate board sitting around a long table in a boardroom, and somebody raises their hand and says, you know, now that we got some extra money, we should probably hire some people for no reason. Does that sound likely? Does that sound like a good business decision? Now, let's try a different scenario. Let's say that the huge majority of the tax cut had gone to the middle class and the working class. And all of a sudden, people who have been trying to make car payments or maybe go on a vacation or you know purchase a new car for a long time, now they have a little bit of extra coin in their pocket and they're able to do it. So now it's a lot more likely that that corporate board is sitting around and somebody raises their hand and says, you know, folks out there seem to be spending money on the services we provide or the product that we make. Maybe we should hire some people to provide more of those services or to make more of the product. That's demand side economics, but it's a way of explaining it that makes a lot more sense. Just say, look, when more Americans have more money in their pocket, they buy stuff and then people get hired to make that stuff. So the second argument is that tax breaks will give people more money to pay health insurance premiums. This is basically a magic trick that they're trying to pull off. It's sleight of hand. They're trying to say, look, we cut your taxes in this one place, and therefore all of your problems are solved. Never mind the fact that this bill is going to cause premiums to go up more by far than the amount that you're going to get back in taxes. That's just a matter of math. If they really wanted to make your health care more affordable, then they would do things like increase the subsidy under the Affordable Care Act. But we have to talk about the fact that it's not just federal taxes that are taxing on your household. There's a game that they're playing here, and I've seen it firsthand. I was in the state legislature elected in 2008 
took office in Missouri in 2009. And this was after the impact of the Bush tax cuts. And what was happening then was that because a lot of federal money had been taken out of the system in tax cuts for the wealthy, it wasn't going to the states. And then state governments had to decide how they were going to make up for the shortfall. In Missouri, lots of politicians like around the country, they didn't want to raise taxes. So they passed the buck, pushed it down to the local level. And then a whole lot of county governments had to increase property taxes in order to make up for the shortfall. So it's a big magic trick. They try and put their one hand behind their back and say, there's nothing here. We gave you a tax cut. And then the other hand, they're forcing somebody else in your life to increase the cost of living. Whether it is a property tax or an insurance premium, you end up paying more money. So it doesn't make any sense at all. By the way, this is also their justification for cutting Social Security and Medicare in the future. Now factor that in. If you no longer are going to have access to the same kind of benefits for Medicare or Social Security in the future, then even in the future, these tax cuts are going to cost you more money in your everyday life. All right, the last argument is specifically a healthcare argument. And it's where somebody says, look, I don't want to pay for somebody else's health care. Get a job that provides health care. It's not my problem if you don't have one. And I think a lot of people have tried to figure out a bunch of ways to introduce the idea that this is good for the economy to provide healthcare for people even when they're in between employment. And that is absolutely right. I 100% agree with that. But all of that is kind of dancing around what we really believe and what I think is our strongest argument, which is that we believe healthcare should be treated as a right. We shouldn't retreat from that. We shouldn't talk around it. That's what we believe. And we should lean into that because the truth is most people agree. This really demonstrates that what should have happened after Obamacare was passed is we should have made our argument for it. You had a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress pass a law that extended health care to millions of people that saved lives across the country, and then everybody backed away and refused to defend it. And then we were all shocked when it became unpopular. And then President Trump won the election in November of 16, and the Republicans were in control of Congress, and everybody said, oh, I guess we have no choice, and they locked arms, and they went out and they made the argument for Obamacare. And lo and behold, a few months later, it was popular. And again, somehow, everybody was shocked about that fact. So the lesson we have to take from that is that we have to make the argument that we believe in, which, by the way, has been pretty much what this whole podcast has been about over the last 10 episodes. It's about making the argument you truly believe in. We truly believe that healthcare is a right and it should be treated that way. Now, I think that in addition to making this argument in order to defend the ACA, we ought to keep going and make this argument in terms of single payer, which is, in my opinion, just my opinion, how you get to extending healthcare as a right. Now, I don't think that this argument is as outside the box as some people say. We have done stuff like this in this country in the past. We created Social Security because we believe that every American should have the opportunity to retire with dignity, that they should have the right to do that. We have public schools because we think that people ought to have a right to at least a basic education. Well, in the same sense, we think that every American ought to have a right never to die from a lack of health insurance. Now, people will say to you, if everybody had health insurance, then the waits are going to be long. But that's like saying, if everybody had a car, you'd never be able to buy one. That's not how the economy works. That's not how selling things work. When you have more customers, then there are more providers of that product. And the same thing is going to happen with healthcare. As always, I want to thank my guest today, Adi Barkan. But this time, I want to reiterate my thanks. It wasn't easy for Adi to do this interview. In fact, right now, nothing is easy for Adi, but he's putting all the energy he can into helping others, into fighting for this country. Please reach out and tell Adi how much you appreciate him. 
He's on Twitter at Adi Barkan. It's A-D-Y-B-A-R-K-A-N. This is a show about having the difficult conversations, about taking it to the next level and grabbing an oar to do more for our country. I can't think of anyone who could have been a more appropriate guest to wrap up the end of season one. We'll have more info about all the organizations Audie discussed in the show notes, but we wanted to add one more. Please check out the ALS Association and consider making a donation. What they're doing is important to my family and to a whole bunch of others. Thank you to everyone who has made Majority 54 a success already. And thanks to the folks at Crooked for helping make this happen in the first place. I don't know what's next, but I've really enjoyed putting these episodes together. And every message you've sent about how it's affected you has meant a lot to me. If you have thoughts on who we might talk to in the future, and remember, it should be you or somebody you know personally who's lived through an issue in the news and then taken an action to do something about it. If you have thoughts, let us know with an email at majority 54 at gmail.com. It may be a little bit before I talk to you here on this pod, but we'll talk again soon enough. Don't be a stranger. Hit me up on your social media platform of choice. All right, this has been Majority 54, and I'm Jason Kander reminding you that we all have a platform and that it's important to use it every day. And with that, I'm going to let Adi get the last word on this very important episode. I found this video from a speech that he gave at the U.S. Capitol in the last few months. To the American people, this is our government. This is our democracy. There is only one way to combat the money of K Street and the money that is driving this train towards such an unjust and inhumane and blind piece of legislation. The only way to defeat this is if the American people rise up and we elevate our voices and we say this is our government, this is our Congress, this is our democracy, and we reject the politics of human oppression. We reject the politics of ignoring um, the American people. And we insist on a government that represents us. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.